Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for Calvary. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that we've sung about this morning. We thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ. We recognize that it's so undeserved. And we thank you for the great privilege that we have of spreading that good news. And thank you for our Canada team and those that are willing to fit this into their schedule this summer. Abby for a month, the others for a week. Micah and Nate and Dawn for the summer. Father, they have needs. Would you help us to be your instruments of grace in providing for their ministry and may many boys and girls and young people and even adults in their brokenness find Christ. Father, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ so carefully recorded by Matthew that we've been studying all these years. It's been so helpful to us. Would you please use it again today as you have in the past? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. I was thinking in preparation for our sermon time today and in alignment with what's happening in Matthew chapter 21, where I invite you to turn in your Bibles today, of what it takes for people to leave a church. And that made my mind go to all the different people in the 21 years I've been here who have left our church. Most of the time, it makes me very sad. People leave our church. And I was just thinking, and I just made a quick list of some of the things that people have told me as to why they are leaving our church. I've been told, and this one grieves me when I hear it, that this is the most unfriendly church they've ever been to, and no one has spoken to them, and so they're leaving. And I, I just, I say I'm so sorry. I, I long for this to be a loving, friendly church, and I think it is most of the time. I've had people uh, suggest that part of the reason they're leaving is that the sermons are far too long, and I don't necessarily disagree with them all the time. Along that line, though, uh, a strange reason that I heard one time, a gentleman sat in my old office on Washington Street and looked across my desk and he said, we're leaving because here at Fellowship, it's just, and he turned his head a little bit and he said, it's just Bible, Bible, Bible. (laughs) I wasn't sure what to do with that. Had a lady hand me on her way out the door a piece of paper where they had handwritten nine reasons they were leaving our church. One of the predominant reasons was that we sit down when we sing. I'm sorry about that. I actually get a little tired of standing the whole time, so we sit down. One time I was teaching a Sunday school class in the summertime back at C.W. Shipley days. And to my shame, I used some put-down humor There were some school teachers present and I was promoting our summer of ministries to kids and I was not serious at all, but I talked about how all the school teachers there could come help us, but then they'd have to get up from their sleeping in all summer. And that was it. Uh, (laughs) Young guy got highly offended. When I called him, that's what he told me. He said, I really didn't like it when you said that. It broke my heart. 
said, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it like that. I was only trying to be funny. Had people leave because um, we don't believe that women should serve in the role of deacon, elder, or pastor. And that's offensive to some people. We understand that that's what the Bible teaches. We've had people leave because we don't speak in tongues. I've had people leave because they accuse us of not believing in miracles. We believe very much in miracles. We just don't believe that people can do miracles. Uh, Really interesting conversations with people. On one occasion, an individual told me he did not agree with the way we were handling our money, and he left. And when I turn to Matthew chapter 21, I find that it's not people who are leaving church because of money, but Jesus himself kicks them out of the church because of their money. Let's turn there, will you please, with me? And let's turn in our notes and and use it as a listening guide. I think it'll help us. Matthew chapter 21 begins with the story of the triumphal entry. Um, This Passion Week beginning, we've already marked the end of it with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And we jumped ahead to chapters 27 and 28 last week for Easter. We're backing up now back to the rest of chapter 21. And we want to take in the final week of our Lord's ministry. um, There are a number of interesting things that occur. I would put the two scenes that we're going to look at today in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 22. We're not going to, we're going to cut off the last section that I had included originally in our text today. Two scenes that we're going to experience the day after our Lord's triumphal entry. I put them in the category really of almost bizarre, just strange what's happening here. I hope it'll be helpful for us to understand the context of what's happening culturally and in the religious system of the day, and then to make the key point of what our Lord is illustrating as he clears out the temple and as he curses the fig tree. Let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 12. We will read through verse 22. Follow along in your copy of God's word. And Jesus entered the temple... And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? And he quotes Psalm chapter eight, verse two, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree, Matthew says, withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, 
How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's stop there today. Lord willing, pick it up next week. I've entitled our sermon today, The Intolerant Jesus. I want you to see that people are kicked out of church or leaving church because of money, but it's not their choice. Actually, our Lord Jesus shows a side of himself that most people don't think of when they think of Jesus. And he becomes highly intolerant about what is happening this week, just days before he goes to the cross. And he literally, physically throws people out of, you might say, church. It's the temple area. To understand this, let's back up just a little bit and let's go to the beginning of our text. Let's picture our Lord entering the temple. What you need to understand as he enters the temple is that, and you might picture in your mind, a a concentric series of squares or areas, okay? So there there is a walled off area that is quite large and you enter through a gate into a large courtyard a large area where many, many people can fit, and it's called the Court of the Gentiles. The reason it's called the Court of the Gentiles is because basically the public could enter that far into the temple area. Now as these areas or these zones, these concentric They're not circles, they're rectangles as they come down. The next gate that you would go through is called the court of women. You would enter the court of women. Now men can always go in there, but it's called the court of women because from this point on, no more Gentiles, only Jews and and women are allowed to be there and worship. And then as you go in, you go into the area where there's further preparation, ultimately ending in the smallest center called the Holy of Holies, where on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest would be allowed to enter there on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. And that's the, the most sacred spot of all. And that's where you hear the story of when you would go in there, they would put bells, sew bells on the robes of the high priest and put a rope around his ankle and they would listen. And if God accepted his prayers and his sacrifice on behalf of the people, and he was a clean priest and God accepted it, then all was well. If not, God was going to strike them dead. They would hear the bells clang and they couldn't go in there or God would strike them dead because of his presence there and they would pull him out with the rope around his ankle. I don't know if that ever happened or not, but it was serious business. So here we are in the greater temple area. Now this is the temple that in 70 AD the Romans are going to destroy completely. It's the temple that our Lord spoke about when he was prophesying about his own body and death, burial, and resurrection. And he talked about tear down this temple and in three days I will build it back up again. They confused what he was saying about his own body with the temple made out of these huge stones in this huge area. And they talked about it it took years to build that. There's no way you could tear it down and rebuild it in three days. That's nonsense. And he was talking about his own body in a prophetic way. So you need to picture this greater outer court area, the court of the Gentiles, which would be the big yard that you would enter upon coming into the temple. This is now, remember, we've had the day before, we've had 
the triumphal entry. Our Lord coming out of Bethphage with a group of people, a group of people already gathered for Passover week in Jerusalem. The two crowds converge. It is a cacophony of praise and sound as well as criticism from the religious leaders as our Lord enters the city on this donkey fulfilling prophecy to the very day. He knows that he's just five days away from going to the cross. And so there they are, and it says then that Jesus enters the temple at this time. And when he enters, what it is characterized by, and he already knows this, our Lord does, but what he witnesses is a scene that is uh, characterized by abuse and desecration of the entire worship system. Abuse and desecration, letter A in our notes. What you need to understand is that in this system... Um, The high priest controlled the worship arena. Let me say this before we describe it further. You will recall that in John's Gospel, chapter 2, John gives an account where our Lord began his earthly ministry by entering the temple, this court of Gentiles, tying some ropes together, making a whip, and going through and clearing out the temple at that time, Uh, early, early on in his ministry. Now he's just days away from the end of his three-year window of ministry and he's going to do it again. Some people think that it's it's a retelling of the same account. I do not believe that at all and I'll explain that later. I think that it is clearly two different occasions. There's a variety of reasons for believing that. But what was going on in the religious system of the worship of the temple under the high priest who at this time was a man named Annas who was very corrupt and he was uh, very uh, um, he he was very corrupt and base and fleshly in his drives and he oversaw the worship system and what you need to understand is when you came in to worship at the temple one of the things you would do is you would need to bring an animal for sacrifice we've talked about this not too long ago how really the bible divides itself into two sections the old testament is all about animal sacrifice the new testament is about the ultimate sacrifice of our lord jesus christ once and for all the old testament is a picture The Old Testament is a type of Christ. And so they're still under the Old Testament. Christ hasn't been to the cross yet. And so in their act of worship, uh, when they came into Jerusalem and and the population had swelled anywhere from three to ten times what its normal population would be. It's just teeming with people. It's teeming with animals. And as you come into town with your family and you were a head of household, you would have raised uh, a lamb, if you, had, if you could afford it, it was an agri-centered culture and society at this time. So people had livestock and animals. There were lambs, there were calves, there were goats. And then if you weren't as wealthy, you would use pigeons or doves. And so you would raise a sheep and you would set one aside and you would take very good care of it because there were requirements for the quality of this animal. It needed to be a lamb, what's the phrase, without blemish. Right, And it would be then slain and its blood would be shed in a symbolic covering for the sin of your family. Well, the high priest and all of the under priests uh, serving there in the temple had devolved or disintegrated into a very corrupt system of abuse and desecration. The first part of the abuse was, number one, power abuse. It was a power abuse. They had the ability to control 
how people could worship and they manipulated that to their own advantage. Here's how they did that. In that large court of Gentiles, they came up with a great idea to block it off. I don't know if they put chalk on the, on the ground or if they put stakes in the ground, but they divided it up into segments and they sold those segments for rent for concession stands. You know concession stands, like where you buy snow cones. Only at these concession stands, you bought the things that you needed for worship. All right, there's a couple ways of looking at it. On the one hand, it took away the need for preparation. Oh, okay, Mabel, it's time to go worship. Don't worry, we'll just buy our stuff at the last minute and run in there. We can fit this in before nine holes of golf. Let's make it happen. And so it became meaningless. You could just go to the concession stand and get whatever you needed. But at, really, at a greater level than that, it was, and so it took away your personal responsibility. But here's how it had become an abuse of power. The high priest instructed the lower priest that when they examined the animals of the people and the families who were coming to worship, that they would reject them. They would always find something wrong with their animal. And then they would say, but you can go right over there to that concession stand and you can buy a lamb that is qualified, that is, meets the standard, it has already been approved by the priests. And so it was a corrupt system. So they made money by the vendors who wanted to rent the concession sites, and they charged a usury for that, all right? And they were in cahoots together, and you had this system that, that the doves or the sheep or whatever it was you needed, but... Here's the thing, you're trapped in the system and it's like being, it's like buying a hot dog at Disneyland. You're going to pay 10 times what you're going to pay at Sheets, $1.99 for two hot dogs and a Coke. And you're not allowed to carry it in. This is exactly the same thing. You get inside our gate, you're under our control, and we'll charge you whatever we want for this. And they would charge you up to 10 times what the value of the animal was worth. And it was a money-making gig. Corrupt to the core. Second part of it was a false motive of it, what really wasn't designed to facilitate worship. It was designed simply to enrich the corrupt priests. But they had another part of this, and it was quite detailed. And another part of this, and this kind of reminded me when I was reading about this, of some of you in your family's past, in your history of West Virginia. You have granddads, maybe your daddy even, but your granddad or your great-granddad who used to coal mine down in southern West Virginia particularly, and they lived in a coal camp. It's a lot like that if you know about that. So, so remember, remember the, uh, what would happen in the old coal camps. Okay, so granddaddy would get up before daylight, go down and work on his knees with a hand drill and a pick and a sledge and wedges, and he would load those coal carts on his knees and get, put his little metal tab on it so that the the accountant up top knew that it was your and you got paid for how many bins full of coal that the horses and mules drug out of there and you would come out after dark and for many days sometimes you never even saw the sunshine and when they went and paid you what did they pay you they paid you with with a currency that was created by the coal company it wasn't any good anywhere except at your coal camp and you rented a house off the coal company and you shopped in the coal company store and used coal company currency and you were trapped. You couldn't go on vacation to Myrtle Beach and use coal money. And if you exchanged it for cash, you took your coal currency and you wanted to go down to the coal store and say, 
hey, mister, how about I give you $10 worth of coal and you give me a $10 bill so that I can go down to Charleston and take the kids to the fair tonight? <laughs> That's not how it worked. Something that was worth $10 worth of coal company money is only going to be worth maybe five bucks of real money. They got their funny money, and that's exactly what was going on here. They created a currency, a coinage that was demanded to purchase all of these things at the vendors, the oil and other grains and animals that were all implements of worship, and you had to exchange your money and they even made it for offerings sometimes. So you weren't allowed to put regular money. You had to go to the money changer and they would change out your regular currency for temple coins. Ah, and that's where they got you. They were nothing but extortionists. And they forced you to do this. And so for every $10, you got 10 or 20 or up to 25 cents on the dollar less in return. And they had a money mill going. I can't imagine anybody abusing worship for personal gain. Can you? Hmm. It's as old as the Bible. These are guys who, if they lived today, would be praising God for how many millions of dollars they have and how it's a sign of God's blessing as they got on their Learjet to head out to their next event. Manipulating people corrupt to the core. So there was power abuse, there was false motive. And so what we have is we have then Jesus in bold confrontation. It's taken me a while to describe all that. I need to figure out a way to speed that up by the third service, but um, <laughs> let's move here. So there's the scene, the court of the Gentiles and our Lord Jesus comes. He knew what he was going to do. It doesn't say in this account that he put together a whip, but I believe it was very much a supernatural activity in the sense of, remember we were reminding you a few weeks ago um, that they tried to murder, maybe last week, that they tried to kill Jesus at one village where there was a cliff and they had him up the edge of the cliff. They were going to push him off a cliff early in his ministry and kill him. And what he did, he walked right through the crowd, remember? And they couldn't lay a hand on him. And I believe that's what happened because to enforce all of these rules, the temple had temple police and they were thugs. They were even allowed, the Romans had given the Jews permission for their temple police to murder, to kill on the spot anybody who tried to get through a gate that they weren't supposed to go through. So if you were a Gentile and you went out of the, the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women or into a holier part, you would get killed on the spot. And the Romans didn't prosecute you. They let the Jews support their their own enforcement. So you got temple police thugs there enforcing everybody, enforcing all this. And our Lord comes in and he begins to kick over tables, knock down chairs, scatter. I can just, the birds are squacking and wings are fluttering and feathers are flying and sheep are bleeding and coins are rolling across the stones. And there's our Lord in this bold confrontation. And our, our Lord Jesus Christ is completely at this point intolerant. A part of Jesus that many people never imagine. He absolutely refused to tolerate this utter disgrace that was going on in his temple. Look what it says then. He said in verse 13 to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. It's a scathing accusation. It's a direct quote from two verses, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. 
You see, they had corrupted temple worship for hundreds of years in Israel. And even Isaiah and Jeremiah had already condemned them for this kind of corruption. And the priests who corrupted the system of worship and didn't even hold themselves accountable before a holy God. And it was horrible, these things. And Christ is completely un- intolerant. He makes this scathing accusation. I want you to know, and he's shoving over another table. This is my father's house. This is my house. It'll be a house of prayer. And you have made it a den of robbers and thieves. And indeed they had. In the middle of this, we have the most interesting scenario that takes place. We go from verse 13 where Jesus is yelling out, totally intolerant, kicking over tables. And in verse 14, Matthew says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's pretty cool, isn't it? There's Jesus. Yes, sir? Jesus, would you heal my hand? Oh, come here. Bam! Kick over another table. Jesus, would you make me... Oh, yeah. He's a great Lord Jesus, isn't he? Isn't it interesting that the, the priests who had corrupted the system, he had no time for them, and they're the people who had no time for the broken people, and Jesus had all the time in the world right in the middle of the chaos for the broken people. Another beautiful picture of the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ that needs to be reflected in us and in our church. Always time for broken people. Well, then there's shock and indignation. That is, by the way, the last public miracles of our Lord before He goes to the cross. There's shock and indignation because the children, no doubt, remembering what they had participated in the day before in the triumphal entry, are hollering out their hosannas and their praises. Uh, The word for children there is actually the word for boys. It's likely, some speculate in the commentaries, that there were a number of of like 12-year-old boys who had experienced their bar mitzvah for the first time. And so there were many, there was a good population of this age of boys. And that they were engaged in worshiping. And once again, just like on the triumphal entry, uh, the priests and scribes look at Jesus and they say, Stop them. Why are you receiving praise from them? Understanding that the praise that was coming from their mouths was absolutely acknowledging him as God, as Messiah. And they refused to hear that. And then he quotes from Psalm 8, verse 2. Don't you know, just like the rocks would cry out, God has prepared infants and children to speak the truth. They always they speak the truth. They know. They're a witness. So there was shock and indignation on the part of the priests and the scribes. Jesus then, it says, leaves and he goes to Bethany and he lodged there. And there in his humanity, he needed rest and relaxation, restoration, Remember who lived in Bethany? That was an interesting place. Uh, One guy was Simon the leopard. He had eaten at his house and stayed at his house. But likely, he found his way to Lazarus and Mary and Martha in Bethany. He had already raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, that was a place where there was a guest room, a place where he had eaten at their home and stayed before. They loved their Lord Jesus. And no doubt, it was a replenishing relationship where he was restored there. Now... We must hurry along. That's scene one, as though it's a drama. Scene two, then, uh, Matthew stacks up the next morning. You'll notice if you read Mark, and I don't have time to explain, Mark divides it 
Okay, so Matthew makes this next scene look like it happened all at one time. I believe that the proper chronology is probably Mark. Matthew's not so concerned about the details there. He's just concerned about what happened at the incident. So what it is, is in the morning as he was returning then from Bethany back to the temple area, it says he became hungry. So Mary and Martha either argued over who would fix him breakfast or he got up and he went and prayed and he missed breakfast. But anyway, I think he knew exactly what he was going to do, of course. And he sees a fig tree and it says he walks over to the fig tree because he had become hungry and he wanted to snack on some figs. So it was a hungry anticipation. He was hungry with anticipation, a hungry anticipation driven by his hunger. But there was a deceptive presentation of the tree. It was deceptive. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. It fooled him. Now, Mark in his account, uh, or I might be wrong, one of the accounts says that it was out of season yet for figs. Now, some fig trees, though, would blossom early. But the point is that the way a fig tree bore fruit was that the fruit led the way ahead of the leaves. So when a fig was starting to ripe on the tree, it was ahead of the blossoming of the leaves. And so if a fig tree had leaves, you could assume that it had fruit. And so Jesus sees the tree from a distance and he sees the leaves. So he knows, hey, there's figs. If there's leaves, there's figs. Leaves was a sure indicator of fruit, but it was a deceptive presentation on part of this tree. And so Jesus speaks words of condemnation. And this is really nothing more than a powerful illustration. Here's where we stop and we're reading our Bibles and we're reading these passages and we say to ourselves, what, what is going on here? Why is it that our Lord, just days before, well, I can kind of understand him clearing out the temple and the offense that that was. And then this weird occurrence next to the fig tree. And then he condemns the tree. And it's a powerful illustration because look what happens. Matthew says that Jesus says, no fruit, may no fruit ever come to you again. And it says, Matthew says, and the fig tree withered at once. Mark says, from the roots up, bam. Mark also says that it happened about 12 to 24 hours apart when they were going out. It was be the next day, 24 hours. So when, on the one day, he saw and went to the fruit. The next day when he came back in the morning, they stopped by the tree and it was all withered from the roots up. That's probably what happened. But Matthew says it is basically at once, bam. It was toxic words from our Lord that killed the tree. It's a powerful illustration. The disciples, by the way, and let's deal with verses 20 through 22 quickly. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying... How did the tree wither at once? So regardless of it was 24 hours or 20 minutes, it was like kabam. It's not normal. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Somewhere along the line in past chapters, we have almost an identical text and I preached on it. I can't remember what I preached about that. You'll have to look it up on the internet. Those verses have been frustrating to a lot of people. So Lord, if I just had enough faith, I could move this mountain. Lord, you would answer. He says, if I just had faith, you would pray. You would pray and it would happen. And I don't have all the answers to it all the time, 
I know that God wants us to come to him in faith and that God has the power to do things through prayer that we sometimes don't ever anticipate. And so we doubt in our own mind what God is going to do ahead of our prayers. And we end up praying prayers that lack faith. But I think what's happening here partly is that this is ministry preparation. This is letter E, ministry preparation. Because in just a few weeks, what's going to happen, Peter's going to preach in the town square of downtown Jerusalem. And the tongues of fire have come upon them. And they're going to be powerful preachers post-resurrection. And I think some of these kinds of illustrations are going to come back. And Jesus is speaking specifically about their earthly ministry as disciples. And they're going to do things that are like, wow. And he's preparing them for a powerful ministry. And they're going to think about this after our Lord ascends into heaven and after their church planting all over, all over Asia Minor. And if you want to read the power that the disciples had that's reflective of this kind of mountain-moving power, read the book of Acts. And you see it. And they healed. And they did miracles in faith. They had already participated in some of that. In our Lord's ministry. So some of it is ministry preparation. We must conclude. I must just list them off quickly. I'm tempted to comment about the clock. It's not the clock's fault. What do we get out of this passage? What do we do with this? This bizarre scene of our Lord. Highly intolerant. And cursing a fig tree. First of all. I think that this is indeed a statement about our Lord's heart. And it has to do with this. The reason that he started his ministry clearing the temple and the reason that he ended his earthly ministry three years later clearing the temple is because he was all about the spiritual work of his heavenly father. What did they want? The, the reason they crucified him ultimately is because they wanted a king with an army to bring military economic and social relief to them. He brought none of that, a little bit of social relief. He, he did not have a military. He did not have an army. He was not going to overthrow the Roman government, but he was all about his father's house. It was about a spiritual kingdom, and he was illustrating to them, you want to know what my priorities are? My priorities are right here at my father's house, and it's a house of prayer, and it's a place of spiritual healing, and it's a place where you're going to find grace and hope. And the love of our Heavenly Father and eternal life ultimately. And get this garbage out of here now. He didn't even comment about all the garbage that was going on in the Roman Empire. He took care of his father's house. The beginning and the end. It's clearly a picture about his heart. Secondly, it's a warning about spiritual hypocrisy. It's what the fig tree illustrates, doesn't it? You got all the external trappings. You got all of the look of success. But on the inside, there's no fruit. Fruit in the New Testament is always an indicator of life, true spiritual life. And when the tree doesn't bear fruit, it's not genuine. And it might as well just be dead, and that's why he kills it. A fruitless tree is a dead tree. It's worthless. I wonder how many of us are guilty of spiritual trappings, but on the inside, there's no fruit. Or with scrutiny of our lives, there's really no fruit. There's a challenge there. There's a whole message there. This is a picture also of the role and responsibility of spiritual leadership. The role and responsibility of spiritual leadership. Every once in a while, it is proper and appropriate for spiritual leadership to become absolutely intolerant. And that is when there is a breakdown in the spiritual development of the people and there's an abuse of power. Somebody better become intolerant and clean out the temple. And that is the role of spiritual leadership. Fourthly, this is clarity, isn't it? 
This is a passage that speaks with clarity about the priority of prayer and worship at his father's house. And this is convicting. So our father's house is not a place of fellowship dinners and coffee. Our father's house is not a place of camps for kids. Our father's house is not a place for music. Our Father's house is a place that will be characterized by prayer. What is that? That's a relationship with the Heavenly Father. That's... I'm not, I'm not saying other things aren't useful. I'm saying if there's something we're characterized by here at Fellowship Bible Church, where on the list would prayer come? It would be about 19th. God forgive us. Let's stand and pray. And so, Father, convict us through this passage. May your Holy Spirit use it well within us. That we would despise spiritual hypocrisy and that we would have, like those precious broken people, just a a freedom and an innocence to come into your presence and know your healing and your fellowship. That we would not be characterized like the fig tree as fruitless, but that our lives would be bearing fruit abundantly. And Father, would you show us here at Fellowship Bible Church in our families, in our personal lives, and as a church in general, how to become a house of prayer and what that looks like. We need your help with that, and we desire that. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.